The parable of the blind man and the elephant can be traced back 2,500 years to the middle of the first millennium B.C. The story suggests that six blind men came upon an elephant, an animal that they had never encountered before. So they tried to determine what it was by by touching it, feeling it. But, but, But each man only touched a part uh, of the elephant. One touched its side and, and said, well, obviously it is a wall. Another touched its trunk and said, no, 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 it's a, it's a snake. Another touched its, its tail and said, no, no, you guys are wrong. It's, it's, it's a rope. Another its leg said it's a tree. Another its ear and said it's a fan. Finally, the sixth man touched its tusk and said, you're all wrong and declared it a spear. The point of the parable, I suppose, is that reality depends on your experience and your perceptions. Or it could be said, as often is, the moral of the parable is people tend to project their partial experiences as the whole truth, thereby ignoring other people's experiences. And and, and in fact, we should consider we might be partially right having only partial information, and therefore, likely, we are also partially wrong. Well, 19th century American poet John Godfrey Sachs published a most famous version of this story. In it, he suggested that the elephant is a metaphor for God, and the various blind men represent different religions, world religions, which disagree Uh, on something that is God, since no one person has fully experienced God. Our perceptions, you see, are limited. They're not the whole truth, and therefore, we are ultimately wrong, faulty. Listen to his poem. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. So often theologic wars, the disputants I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prayed about an elephant not one of them has seen. Cute. Obviously, many have delightfully uh, latched onto the moral of that story, applying it to various world religions which only contain, you know, part of the truth, part of the picture. We've got to put them all together to get the full picture, and, and, and therefore we are partly right and partly wrong. In fact, notice again that last line, not one of them has seen. Is that right? In a sermon, several of us pastors heard a few years ago at a pastor's conference, actually, Pastor Kevin DeYoung cited this parable and suggested there was a problem with it, that is, as it relates to religion. You see, he said, what if as the blind men who were truly blind, what if as they groped about, the elephant spoke, I am an elephant, I think it's a wall. I am an elephant. 
I think it's a tree. I am an elephant. The elephant, remember, Sack suggested as a metaphor for God. But, but what if God has made himself known? I am God. What if God spoke? This, you see, is the challenge of modern society. How many times have you been asked? How do you know? How can you believe in something or someone you've never seen? <laughs> Therefore, since I'm, I, I, I've never seen, it with my, seen him with my own eyes, I will not believe I'm an agnostic or I am an atheist. And so, atheism is the fastest growing, is fastest growing among young people under the age of 30 in our country. Surveys in the U.S. demonstrate that that demographic is reaching almost 30%, you know, because it's popular, those who claim to be atheists. But the question is, what if God is not silent? What if God has spoken? <laughs> and yet you respond within the bounds of the parable, but an elephant cannot speak. And so you would impose um, categories of the creature on the, cre- on the creator and limit God so as to say, he cannot speak, and yet you do. But you ask further, how has God spoken? The Christian faith suggests three very clear ways. First, by what is called general or natural revelation. That is, creation itself declares the undeniable reality of a creator, of God himself. Psalm 19 says it this way, the heavens are telling, notice, they speak. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveal knowledge. The, the, the heavens themselves declare the reality of a Creator. Moreover, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, his inv- three things, his invisible attributes, that is his character, his eternal power, which must be great in order to, to, to create everything like the universe that we see, and his divine power, thirdly, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they, that is people, are without excuse. <laughs> I've often wondered, haven't you? Why is it that people spend so much time denying that which is supposedly not real? I've never seen people spend so much energy uh, denying the reality of a unicorn or of a snipe. Why do they do that? Because they know in their heart of hearts, He is real, He is undeniable, and they are therefore without excuse. Why is it that you can go to every culture in the world today and they have some concept of deity? Because they know in their heart of hearts, He is undeniable. Creation clearly points to a magnificent master creator. 
But Paul goes on. Though the reality of God will be and is clearly seen, we're just a bunch of blind men. We take the truth of the existence and majesty of God and we, and we suppress it. We even deny it. Listen to what Paul further says. For even though they, that is people, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, read blind. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, traded it in. The glory of the incorruptible, the majestic, the incomparable God for an image uh, in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animal and crawling creature. Notice reverse evolution. It's where we end up. You see, modern man... Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago. Modern man is not the first to deny the reality and existence of God despite the clear evidence of his self-revelation to the contrary, and they will not be the last. With foolish, darkened hearts, blind eyes, they deny him or they recreate him into something more palatable, something more controllable into their own image. Let's make God like us. Didn't work so well for the Greeks and the Romans. The prophet Isaiah had some rather interesting things to to say about this recreation, this lowering of of God into images that we could control and, and handle. First, he, he declares the incomparable majesty and, and greatness of God in, in chapter 40. It's a wonderful chapter. I'd love to read it all to you. I'll read a few verses. Who, who, who has measured the waters? Here's my question. What waters? All waters in the hollow of his hand, oceans, seas, rivers, streams. Marked off the heavens by the span. What's a span? That. The universe is about that big. Calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Scale and put the mountains and the hills on this side. and It's about that much. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and, and who gave him understanding? You understand the answer is nobody. Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the ways of understanding? Behold, the, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are regarded as a speck of dust. On the scales, behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Starting to get a picture of his greatness. All the nations are 
as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare uh, uh, with him? Unless, of course, you recreate him and make him like you. Or a bird. Or a crawling creature. Finally, God speaks. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and, and see who has created the stars. And we go to the heavens. See who has created the stars. The one who leads uh, forth their host by number and calls them by name. I've mentioned this before, but I love this. I understand you can go to the internet right now. There are hundreds of billions of stars out there waiting to be named and for a small price. You can name a star after that very special someone. Give them a little certificate. This star is named Eloise or Samantha. And God sits in heaven and says, no, that's Charlie. (laughs) It's too late. You can't name them. They're already named. Save your money. Because... Of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them, not one is missing. Hundreds of billions of stars, he knows them all by name. Humanity is supposed to look at the magnificence of creation and know that there is a God, one to whom, one with whom no one compares, but we dismiss him. We truly are blind people groping about in the dark, refusing to receive his very clear self-revelation. You could then flip over to Isaiah 44 and find that the prophet actually, frankly, makes fun of us. He says, a man cuts down a tree and uses half to, to, to build a fire to warm himself or perhaps to bake bread or maybe grill a steak. And with the other half, he carves an idol and bows down to it. How foolish. How blinded we are. The heavens declare the glory of God so that we are without excuse. But general revelation is not the only way that God has made himself known. Now, now, let let me stop there and ask a rather obvious, simple question. If there is a God and we are his creation, in fact, we're created in his image, would it not make sense For him to make himself known to us, to reveal himself to us, indeed he has. Contrary to the deists and the like who suggest that God created everything, then sits back, as it were, with a bowl of popcorn to see what will happen. No, 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 no. He has communicated with his creatures, namely those created in his image. We do not create God in our image. We were created in his emotionally, relationally, spiritually, morally, eternally. Eternally, he, ha- he is not silent. He has spoken to us. Which brings us to the second way that God has revealed himself, and that is through what is called s- special or supernatural revelation. So there are two kinds of, uh, 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 of, uh, of special revelation. So there's There's general revelation, creation, and there are two kinds of special. Two plus one makes three. There are three ways, I said, that he reveals himself to us. The first of special revelation is through his word, that is, 
the Bible. God has spoken through his word such that we can actually know him. He is a God, you see, of words who, who has chosen to communicate in word his truth to us. God would be altogether and ultimately unknowable if it were not for his gracious self-revelation through his word. He inspired the authors of scripture um, uh, through the prophets to write. And the word of God is ultimately not a history book. I know that it contains history. And in as much as it contains history, it's true and it's right. You can trust it. But it is not a history book. It's not even, this will blow some of your categories, it is not even primarily a science book. Now, I know it contains science, and in as much as it contains science, it is right and it's true, but it's not a science book. Stop approaching it like a science book. It is first and foremost a theology book. It is a book to tell us about God. 2 Peter chapter 1 says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now, how do you make the prophetic word, the word of God, more sure? We'll talk about that next week. To, to which you do well, listen, to pay attention as to a lamp shining in, in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But, no, but know this, people. First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own, own interpretation for no prophecy, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. I think I'll just sit down and write Bible today. Nope, didn't happen. But, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God has spoken. He has spoken in his word. That's why we study the Bible. Word by precious word to know God who has spoken. We can actually know him. We do, we do not listen carefully. I always when I say listen, I want to say listen, Linda. So, some of you will get that. Um, we, we do not have to grope around in the dark and, and guess. The Bible is his self-revelation. But, but, but it is not, listen, it is not his final revelation. His final, complete, perfect, glorious most glorious revelation came in and through his son. Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two say it this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. God, God, God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament, under the provisions of the Old Covenant. But listen, when Jesus came, he, he came in fulfillment of those Old Testament promises to bring the New Covenant, and God continued to speak. Jesus is the final, complete, clear, authoritative, glorious revelation of God to us. This is unbelievable. So, when people say, how can you believe in a God that you have never seen? We can say, we have seen him. He, he has revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in his word, and he's revealed himself ultimately in his son. It's a perfect trifecta. What more do you need? You have the entire universe which screams his glory. You have God himself self-disclosed in his word, but, but that's not all. You have God himself self-disclosed in the flesh. What more do you need? 
I haven't seen it with my eyes. People say. And yet you ignore the clear evidence of his revelation. I want to say this gently. See, here, here is the bottom line truth. According to Romans 1, people want to live how they want to live, not in accordance with clearly revealed and righteous truth of the true and the living God, so they make God up. Or they deny his existence so they can live how they want in continued rebellion against him. You cannot say, I've never seen him. Yes, you have. When people say all religions are the same, groping around in the dark, trying to piece together the unknowable, we can say, au contraire, we have the full picture. We are not in the dark. God has spoken and fully and finally revealed himself in his son and given us light. And we can say, don't you want to know him like we know him? And and so, brothers and sisters, if we have the truth of God, the perfect, complete, full, glorious revelation of God through his son, why would we consider anything else? Why would we consider quitting? Why would we consider anything else like golf, NASCAR, whatever else happens on Sunday? Why would we consider anything else more important? Why would we consider going back to our miserable pre-Christian lives? Why would we consider abandoning that which we know to be true despite the hardships, the challenges, the opposition, the difficulties of living out the Christian life? And it is difficult, make no mistake about it. Why would we quit? Because Jesus is better than anything this world or any religion has to offer. Jesus is better. We arrive this morning to the very glorious book of Hebrews. So excited about, about getting to this book. I've looked forward to it for years. And over the last few weeks, I've been reading a lot about it. And I'm no longer excited. I am intimidated. I, I, I'm not kidding. I'm going to ask you to pray for me. This is a most glorious book. And I want to be faithful to it and communicate it in ways that we can understand, to include me, that we can understand more about the Son of God, our great high priest. This is incredible. Let me make, take just a, a couple more minutes to introduce you to the book by asking the normal questions that is, who wrote it? To whom, was it was, to whom was it written? When was it written? And the answer, simple answer, to all of those questions is the same. We don't know. The stand would be dismissed. For, no, I'm kidding. The book, you see, is strictly anonymous. 
The, the author does not identify himself, which presented a problem for the early church. It, it actually took a while for the book of Hebrews to be accepted. You see, in order for a book to be accepted into the Bible, that's called into the canon, or it's this, this is the doctrine of canonicity, it was thought necessary to be written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. So, for example, Matthew was an apostle. Mark was a close associate of Peter. Luke, a close associate of, of Paul. John was an apostle. Peter was an apostle. This is why the apostle Paul made such a big deal about Jesus appearing to him personally, calling him and teaching him, as, and calling him an, an apostle. We'll come back to that. And, and so, who wrote Hebrews? Got to be, it seems, one of those conditions. It was supposed to be accepted as, it was, if it was to be accepted as canonical, it needed appropriate authorship. So for many years, it was supposed the Apostle Paul wrote it. The only problem was he didn't, and pretty much everybody knew it. Now, not only does the author use a higher, more polished style of Greek, not only does he use a completely different vocabulary than Paul, not only does Paul identify himself in every one of his other 13 letters, not only does the book contain different categories than those normally found in, in Paul, most notably, most notably, the author says in chapter 2, verse 3, that he heard the truth of the faith from others who heard it from Jesus. This is completely contrary to what Paul claimed for himself, what he says elsewhere. So virtually everybody, I can name no exception, everybody today recognizes Paul did not write this great, glorious book. But assuming it needed to be written by an apostle or a close associate, other viable guesses have been offered, <laughs> like Barnabas or Apollos or Luke or Clement or Priscilla. If I took the time to name all of the guesses, it would take the rest of our time. The list is long. And there are some actually good reasons for some of the suggestions, good guesses. But for most of them, we actually don't know. We don't have other writings with which to compare Hebrews to see if they are the same person. In the end, to quote an early church father named Origen, who wrote the epistle is known to God alone. We got to be okay with that. But clearly, it was inspired by God and has been accepted into the canon for almost 2,000 years. Glorious book. To whom then was it written? Again, the answer is, we don't know. An epistle then usually began with the identification of the author. This is me, Paul, writing, and to whom it was written, to the Colossians, the Philippians, whatever. This one doesn't. Some even argue that it technically isn't a letter. Uh, it's more of a sermon, what the author himself calls in chapter 13 a word of exhortation. But, but, but it ends with some characteristics of a letter, so many call it a sermon letter. It's got to be one of my favorites. <laughs> but, 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 but again, to whom was it written? You understand the titles... Were, were added. They, they were not inspired. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not like Matthew got ready to write and said, Matthew. No, he didn't do that. Okay? This one, from the earliest days, carried the title to the Hebrews. Now, that was a title that was added. But, but why that title? Because a careful reading of the book makes clear the readers were formally immersed in Judaism. They were quite familiar with the Old Testament. This and other reasons suggest that the readers were Jewish Christians. But, but, but where were these Jewish Christians living? Another big argument. 
some argue as far away as Spain, some Jerusalem, and the answer is, you ready? Say it with me. Don't know. They, they could have been Jews in Palestine. Jerusalem, again, is a frequent guess. But without going into detail, there are clues um, that these Jews were not living in Jerusalem or in Palestine. So the most oft-guessed location, guest location, is that was written to Jewish believers in Rome. Why Rome? couple of important reasons. First, the, the book is first quoted by Clement of Rome in a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, which also becomes important for dating the book, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, again, uh, additionally, so, so, so Clement in Rome quotes it first. Additionally, these believers were facing persecution, but not quite to the point of death yet, which leads again to the next question, when was it written? Well, Clement wrote that letter to the Corinthians in 96 AD, in which he quotes Hebrew, so it must have been written at least by then. Further, if it was, if, big if, it was written to Rome, the persecution could be referring to a time in 49 AD. This is interesting. When the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. Why did he expel Jews from Rome in 49 AD? Judaism, by the way, and this will become important later, was actually an accepted or a legal religion. Christianity was illegal. Judaism was legal. Why did he expel the Jews? Well, apparently there are some big fights that broke out about a man named Crestus, which most scholars today agree is a misspelling of the word Christos or the word Christ. They were fighting about whether Jesus was the Christ. Get out of here. So they were expelled, lost their homes, which Hebrews 10 talks about, but they, but they were not yet martyred. That'll come later in 64 AD under the Roman Emperor Nero. Oh, also, the, the author speaks of the Jewish sacrifices still being offered, that is in the present tense. So that means if it was past 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, there would have not been sacrifices being offered. Besides, the author is going to go on to prove that Jesus was the fulfillment of the sacrifices. He was the final sacrifice. There's no need for further sacrifices. Wouldn't it make sense for him to point to the destruction of the temple as proof? So most agree, all of that to say, that the letter was likely written to Jewish believers in Rome in the early 60s AD. All guesswork. Most agree, but it's guesswork. Don't put any money on that bet. But why was it written? On this, we can't agree, and with this, I close. The author himself says it is a word of exhortation. His readers were facing great difficulties, challenges. Some had already quit, likely returned to Judaism. Others were considering doing so. Some had already quit assembling with the believers. They quit coming together when the church gathered for worship and instruction. It had become a challenging time. So he writes to encourage them to persevere, to press on, to, to not quit. Some of those exhortations come in the form of some of the strongest warnings that we, the strictest warnings that we find in the entire New Testament. We've got to deal with them. Very challenging warnings. But his primary reason for not quitting, his primary argument for not leaving Christianity is this, Jesus is greater. He's better. You see, he's the eternal son of God and he became our great high priest by his work on the cross. As such, he is better than angels who mediated the old covenant. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He's better than Aaron. He's better than those old covenant sacrifices. Why? He's the fulfillment of those old Testament sacrifices. He's better than 
Fill in the blank. That's just a list of some of the things that the author talks about. He's greater. He's better than anyone or anything that this world, this universe has to offer. So why would you consider quitting? I don't know all of you personally. I don't know what you're facing in your life. I don't know what personal challenges you're facing just keeping with the Christian faith. I don't know what personal challenges you're facing in your family and with your roommates or at your workplace or what, 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 I don't know. I don't know what challenges you are facing. I want to say to you very clear and very unequivocally, he's worth it. Don't quit. He's worth it. This book is about the supremacy of Christ, the singular sufficiency of his work, and therefore the necessity of faith in him alone for salvation. Why would you consider anything else? This is a word for us today in an increasingly hostile culture, in a country, frankly, that has largely abandoned the faith, in a country that is unbelievably embracing atheism or secularism or Islam or any number of other religions or so-called spirituality. How many times have you heard people say, well, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. What the heck does that mean? We know and we love God who has spoken and made himself known. Why would you ever consider leaving? Some of you right now can think of people who used to sit in this room with us. And I'm not reducing Christianity to this hour. That's not what I'm talking about. But who used to be with us. I'm not saying that they've gone to another church. I, I know that people in our culture flit from church to church rather regularly, and I'll reserve comment on that. But I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who used to be here. They used to be part of us. They used to worship with us. And right now, they are either home in bed or doing something else. Why? Why? Why would they do that? The author sums up his purpose in chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. My brothers and sisters, it is eternally worth it. Let's pray. Father, this is glorious truth. Many of us can remember the day that we came uh, to faith in Christ and we were overwhelmed by the majesty and glory and of truth and reconciliation and forgiveness and overwhelmed. And, and, and yet for some of us, it's been months or years or decades. And maybe it hasn't gotten any easier. In fact, maybe it's become more difficult. My prayer for us as we go through this book is that we will be brought face to face with Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, once again, and we will be enamored, we will be overwhelmed, better word, overwhelmed by the glory of who he is and what he has done. 
and that we would persevere, that we would not quit. In Jesus' name, amen.